I've really been connecting with our word this year, surround. I don't know about you guys, but this last week, um, I've really been thinking about it. And uh, for my family, surrounding ourselves with the things of God has been a strategy. You know, obviously I commissioned us all to try it. I've been trying it because, you know, I am the pastor. And we do devotionals with our kids at night and in the mornings, but we've been trying it out at dinner too. And for a long time, I've been doing it out of duty because, you know, I'm a pastor and, you know, duty calls. (laughs) Never mind. Sorry, don't make that joke. Grow up, John. Okay. uh, So anyway, this week... I've really been focused, though, on not just doing it because I should. I'm doing it because I want to surround my kids. And I've been thinking a lot about, do my kids have a pioneering spirit? I want to see a faith that goes from generation to generation. And if that's what I want, I, got, I really got to surround them. Now, I promise this week a whole additional dimension to the power of surround. There's going to be a good message And uh, it will be targeted at Christians, but even if you're not a Christian, uh, at the end of this message, I have something that's gonna be really helpful for you. It's gonna be good. But when I was a kid, we used to have a time in our church called Testimony Time. Some of you guys might've grown up with a church like this, but this is where people would share a testimony of the power of God in their life. And uh, a lot of times, you know, we'd select someone, they'd come up, they'd share their God story. And I always thought it was interesting to see us, you know, we talked a lot about theology and why we believe in God, but then to see how God actually worked in somebody's life. It was really helpful to see that. And today we still do it in church. We call it a God story. And we share it typically on baptism and profession Sundays. Um, we'll share like a video of somebody doing that so that at all of our churches, locations and services, people can, can see a God story. And today I, I wanna think about our God stories. I challenge you to maybe think about how your life intersects with God. How did you come to faith? And I'd like to share a little bit about my God story too. Mine is pretty simple, but there's some parts of it, a concept within it that I wanna teach about. I had parents that were raised Buddhist and atheist. I think both of them, before they even met each other, realized that their respective religions offered no life, no life. I mean, my mom, she talks about it. She says, you know, praying to my ancestors offered me nothing. It wasn't real. It just, we did this and it was like, it was nothing. But in Jesus, she found something different that was, that was real. I think my dad realized that something doesn't come from nothing, that the religion of atheism was built on lies. And they both found life in Christ and their families respectively were actually very opposed to their choices. My mom's family in particular, but also my dad's family, um, they didn't like it either. So they raised my brother and I in a Christian home. They wanted us to love Jesus and they dedicated us to the Lord when we were very young. I actually have a picture of the dedication. Go ahead and put up that picture of me being dedicated. That's it right there. Just kidding, just kidding. That's liking. Here's the real picture of my parents dedicating me when I was a baby in church. Look how young my dad looked and my mom. My mom actually hasn't changed because Asian people, we just, anyway, how old are we? We can't tell. But uh, I look super Japanese in that picture though. Holy cow, look at that. That's... Let's go make some fried rice. Anyway, um, I remember telling my parents when I was in the eighth grade that church and God were not for me. I said, I don't wanna, I don't wanna follow God. And my dad told me that that was okay. He said, I understand that you don't believe what we believe. You still have to go to youth group and you still have to go to church and you don't have a choice. And I went with my arms crossed and I was so upset. My lips stuck out so far a bird could poop on it. That's what they used to say. You remember when you watch out, bird's gonna poop on that. What does that even mean? You know, I don't know if your parents said that. But anyway, um, I remember the first leaders I had in youth group, Paul Yonke and Scott Doley. And I went in there and I didn't wanna go. And so I just, in my mind, made a list of terrible questions to ask, right? And I just went, this is a little junior high boys group. And I just hit them with the worst. I said, if God's all powerful and all knowing, could he make a burrito so big he couldn't finish it? Huh? Like, what do you think of that? Why does the fossil record so clearly indicate a multi-million year process of evolution? What's your answer, right? I'm just hitting them up. You know, why does God prohibit sex in so many different areas? Why does he care? Is he just a voyeur? I mean, what about that stuff? Can't we just do what we want? 
This is a sixth to eighth grade boys little group at, at uh, youth group. I'm just laying into these poor guys. And Scott Doley, Mr. Doley was, uh, he was Norwegian. He had blonde hair and blue eyes and very pale skin. And he was like a walking mood ring. And I just loved making him blush. You know, it was just a great joy of mine to see this man struggle and whatever. And for two years, I just made those guys answer my terrible questions. And I never gave them the satisfaction of acting like their answers were enough. I just hit them constantly, you know, and whatever. And eventually they both quit leading, true story, because of me. So that's great. That's just, that's just how I roll. And I never let them know in the moment, but their answers... We're actually making some progress in my heart. I just want to give a shout out to our next gen leaders. By the way, you guys volunteer in the toughest, most demanding place in our whole church. I mean, it's a very high requirement place to volunteer. Thank you for doing great work. But I remember after Mr. Doley and, and, um, and Mr. Yonke, I had Rick Jacobson. He was our youth pastor. And he took us on a mission trip to Mexico. And uh, I have to admit, that trip really changed my life. I wasn't ready to believe in God. My parents made me go on it. And if you've never taken your kids on an international mission trip, I think it's a very good thing to do. It'll change your life. It'll change their life. But I went and I became more open to God existing. And then I went on a youth conference trip and I heard speakers that I actually understood. Francis Chan, some of you are like, is he your twin? And it's like, no, we're not related. But um, Francis Chan, Louis Giglio was there and they spoke and I actually understood what they were saying and it was really powerful. And then there was this guy who led worship and he, he was like a, a super old worship leader. His name's Chris Tomlin. And uh, he played this music and I just never heard music like that. I'd call it like indescribable, uncontainable. You know, I mean, it was just amazing music, you know? And then, and then it was just one of the first times I experienced church that I could like, understand. And I came back and I was still skeptical. And my brother was praying for me because he knew that I didn't believe in his God. And, you know, he was afraid I was going to go to hell and he's praying for me and whatever. And uh, my brother went to a camp one summer and it was amazing for him. And he begged me to go to this camp with him. And it was led by a man named Jeff Wright. And I ended up going and Jeff presented the gospel no differently or better or more clearly than I'd heard it from Rick Jacobson, my mom, my dad, Scott Tolley, Francis Chan, Chris Tomlin, a hundred times before. But after being surrounded for years, I chose to follow Christ. And I want to be clear, it happened in a moment where someone had the boldness to bring me to a decision, but it was also 15 years where this great crowd of witnesses, this cloud of witnesses, the NIV says, where, you know, my parents and Scott Doley and the church and Paul Yonke and Rick Jacobson and Louis Giglio were surrounding me with the gospel. And I do believe that people are saved in a moment. You know, I've had conversations with people where they've chosen to follow Jesus, but they had been prepared and elected by God's spirit before I had that conversation. That's how God works. And the sad part is Scott Doley, in particular for years, felt like a failure until I told him the impact he'd had on my life years later. I just think there's a lot of people, a lot of people, you feel like a failure when it comes to sharing your faith. You know, because you try and it didn't work and you feel like a failure because, you know, they didn't understand and you don't understand the power of surround. But surround is how God works. Paul talks about this clearly in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. He says, after all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We're only God's servants through whom you believed the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seeds in your hearts. Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important. Who does the planting or who does the watering? Some of you guys have heard me use the phrase, pastors come and go, but a church is for the generations. And it's rooted in scripture right here. I mean, Paul tells us, pastors, that's not what matters. It's God who does the work in people's hearts. The one who plants, the one who waters work together with the same purpose. And both will be rewarded for their hard work. It's a surround. I give Jeff Wright credit all the time for presenting the gospel and leading me to Christ. And he is my pastor. But guess what? It was God. It was God doing the work behind the scenes. I give my parents credit all the time for work, but it was God behind the scenes. 
I thank God that my parents had a vision for the strategic process of surround in my life. And they really did. I mean, they had to put it to work. I was a um, state contender for cross-country skiing, which is a really big sport in Minnesota. It's a terrible sport. You know how we do this thing called downhill skiing? Some of you guys have done it where you go up a chairlift and then down the hill. Cross-country skiing, you just ski up the hill. You know what I mean? And it's, ter it's a terrible idea. Why would we do that? You know, I remember we would go to downhill ski areas and literally underneath the chairlift, we would ski up the hill. It's like, why are we doing this? But that's, that's what you do, right? And um, our school, it wasn't that big a public school. We had maybe 300 kids per grade, but we had 100 kids on the cross-country ski team. It was a really big sport. And there was five boys varsity spots and I made varsity in eighth grade. I was good. And my parents said, hey, um, you're not going to miss church for this sport. You can go. But we had a lot of meets that were on Sundays. They said, you can't go to these meets, which was really frustrating because they were the big ones. But they said, no, 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 we're going to surround you. And on Wednesday nights, you're not missing youth group. You know, and we had practice. It would go to eight, nine o'clock at night. And they'd be like, no, you can't go on Wednesdays or you're leaving early. And that's the end of it. You have to go to church. And what did they do? They quarterbacked the surround, the surround, they surround. You know, I think about that a lot. My dad had his son sitting in his office and say, I don't believe in the God you believe in. He had a front row seat to what life like that could be like. And you know, he could have sat back and been like, well, he'll come back and it'll be okay and whatever. No, he lived the surround. And I'm proud of him for developing a relationship with his teenage boys where he felt comfortable, um, where we felt comfortable sharing our innermost thoughts with him. And rather than panicking and rather than representing Jesus to us in the moment, which he already knew we would reject. I mean, we knew the gospel would have gone terribly. He and my mother quarterbacked the surround. And my dad told me, I still remember the conversation. He told me, I said, I don't believe in the God you believe in. And he told me, he goes, that's fine, John, that you don't believe in Jesus today. I respect that. Um, but I know that I'm gonna help you figure it out. And someday you're gonna do great things for Christ and his kingdom. That's what he said. He said, I know God. And I know that if you truly seek him, you will find him. And they ensured that God was everywhere I looked. Remember that old full house song, everywhere you look? That was it for me and God. Like everywhere I look, God was there because my parents made sure that he was. The surround isn't just a word, it's a strategy. It's a covenant that parents make with God to surround their kids. They made God's grace irresistible to me. I couldn't look anywhere and not find God. It's just God was everywhere. It's because my parents practiced the surround. And that's my God story. That's how I found God. The surround, I think, is how Jesus worked for his most devoted followers. Jesus had these 12 kids who followed him. Well, 11 kids. One was an adult. Peter was an adult. But the rest were all teens. Have you ever wondered how he reached them? And I want you to think about their stories. Imagine the most devoted Christian family that you know, super devoted, you know, they're in church all day, love God, you know, raised in it, passionately believed it with all their hearts. And then imagine like one of those kids plans on going into ministry. So the parents uh, hook that kid up with someone who's gonna train him and mentor them. And instead of training them up in the ministry, imagine that that mentor convinces your kids to become Jewish. That's essentially the analogy of what Jesus did with the disciples, except the opposite. The conversion went the other way from Judaism to Christianity. And that's not like a small feat. How did Jesus accomplish that? Well, he did it by practicing the surround. It was a three-year process of relationship, example, and inspiration. And then finally, at the very end of Jesus's ministry, he called his disciples to faith. I mean, look at Peter's God story. Okay, Peter's family, they owned a commercial fishing, fishing company, which is awesome. I don't know if you know that, but like fishing is a biblical sport for those of you who do it. It's kind of a cool deal. And um, Jesus uh, has Peter start following him. And he was kind of famous at that time, but Peter starts following Jesus. And were they Christians in the moment they first started following Jesus, like around the, the, the area of Israel? No, no way. And Peter saw Jesus, he asked questions, he learned just like I did for years, right? And we can see it in the biographies of Jesus's life. There's a spot where Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, he says, now I say to you that you're Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock, I'll build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. 
Peter's not a Christian yet when Jesus says that. He's still figuring out where he's at. Jesus is speaking a vision of a great future to Peter, but it was just like me with my dad. I said, dad, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in God yet. And my dad said, that's fine. You're gonna love God someday. That's what Jesus was doing with Peter. He's practicing the surround. Because after this takes place, Peter famously denies that he knows Jesus, right? I mean, he tells, tells the crowd, I, I don't know Jesus, I don't know Jesus. Denies three times that he knows him. He's not a Christian, right? So then Jesus comes back from the grave and has a confrontation with Peter where he calls Peter to become a Christian. In the last chapter of the biography of Jesus's life called John, Jesus calls Peter to cross the line of faith. Some of you know the conversation. Jesus looks at Peter and says, you know, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, I love you. And this is where Peter becomes a Christian. And uh, it's funny because Jesus makes sure that Peter counts the cost. I mean, he doesn't like mince his words or anything like that. He looks at Peter, he goes, okay, well, if you wanna become a Christian, just so you know, you're gonna die for your faith. You're gonna die for me. Um, and I just, I want you to know that. And Peter, his response, he goes, well, what about, <laughs> what about John? Is he gonna have to die? And Jesus is like, no, he won't have to die, but you will. And that's what he tells him. And then Peter follows Jesus and follows through and commits. Why? Because of the surround. Because Jesus had been surrounding him for years. Surround is not a coincidence. Surround is a discipline, it's a strategy, it's a covenant and a commitment. Jesus had a plan from the moment he called his disciples to the moment he ascended into heaven, he was surrounding them, surrounding them, surrounding them. When I had a conversation with my dad saying I didn't believe, he didn't just sit there and pray that God would save me. He didn't just sit there and say, well, you know, they're part of a covenant family, he's gonna come back, whatever, no. He put a large strategic plan into action where I was surrounded by Christians. And when my parents knew my heart was ready, they sent me to cap, camp. And true story, my parents didn't pay for any of my sports stuff. I had to like work and save money for my skis and everything like that. Um, they paid for camp and it was a big investment. Back then it was expensive. I mean, it was a lot to send me to camp, but they sent me there because they knew that Jeff was gonna present the gospel to me. And you know, um, if they had let me stop going to church because I didn't want to in my crisis of faith, if they just sat back and let me do whatever I wanted to do, I don't know that I'd be following Christ today. Maybe I would, but I wouldn't have had a pioneering faith. And they knew that if they wanted their grandkids to love Jesus, generation after generation, they had to give their kids a pioneering faith. Surround is a great word, but there are moments where it takes courage. And I think that picture I showed you, my parents dedicating me when I was a child, that to me is a covenant promise that families make. That's a big commitment. And it's easy when you're young and you bring your babies up on stage, it's not hard to make that promise. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm gonna be in church all the time. There's nothing else to do. You wouldn't wanna take your kids anywhere else. I said last week, like when you have babies, it's like the worst time. You go to church and you put them in the nursery and it's like, praise God. I love coming to church because I don't have a baby in my arms. Thank God. But when you're older, it's just easy to lose sight of the surround. But we bring our kids to church and we make it irresistible for them to follow Jesus. I mean, that's what we do. We say, we're gonna surround you. God's grace is gonna be irresistible to you. That's why when we dedicate babies at the church, like we did last week through baptism, it's parents making a commitment to surround their children. And it is a commitment. It's a discipline. It's a promise. That's what surround is. And this year, I want our church to start taking that seriously again. I mean, for us with kids, for us without kids, I want us to start practicing this concept of surround. This is how Jesus connected with his disciples. This is how we raise up new followers of Christ. So I wanna ask you a big important question. I wanna ask you, who is close to you, but far from God? Or maybe who is close to you, but has a rickety relationship with God in their life? It's just not, it's not a pioneering faith. I wanna challenge you to write down the name of one person in your note sheet, really, write down their name someone who lives near our church communities, someone that you can actually surround this year. But I want us not just to pray about a word, I want us to practice the discipline of the surround. So I think so often we, we, we assume that like sharing our faith is like one shot, one opportunity. 
you know? Have you ever, what would you do if you had one shot, one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted? Would you capture it or just let it slip? Like, that's what we think, that's what we think sharing our faith is like. I mean, it's this big, scary, like, I gotta do it. I gotta lose myself in this moment. And that's not how it works. I mean, yes, there is sometimes a conversation that's a big deal, but it's, it's more than that. It's a surround. And, you know, I thank God for, for men of God who had bold conversations, like Jeff Wright, who had the boldness to call me to faith. But I also thank God for the dozens of men and women who tried and failed before him. Because here's my big point. I want you to, it's just a one point message. Just one big point. I want you to get this. It's not just a moment. It's a moment surrounded by moments. It's a moment surrounded by moments. Salvation in Christ happens in a moment. God's grace, we are redeemed and regenerate in a moment, but it's surrounded by thousands of other moments of faithfulness. And we're called to be a part of all of it. And yeah, sometimes you're called to be a part of the moment, but you're also called to be a part of the moments surrounding the moment. So who's close to you but far from God? This year, I don't want us to just pick a word and pray for that word and whatever. I want us to pick a person and pray for a person, and then I want us to surround that person with moments, to practice a surround. Pick a few people and surround them. Some of you guys have heard of the famous pastor D.L. Moody. You ever heard of Moody Bible Church in Chicago? It's a big deal. There's Moody Bible Institute. It's a great place um, to get an education. It's actually free. I don't know if you know that, but Moody Bible Institute has free tuition. Some of you are like, what? Yeah, yeah. They educate pastors for free. But um, D.L. Moody, he uh, felt called into ministry and he at the time felt super unqualified. He was an uneducated shoe salesman. And he ended up having one of the greatest impacts of any minister in the modern era, like ever. He did, he did great. When he first got into it, um, He's a little bit scared. And what he did was he made a list of 101 friends that were close to him, but far from God. He made this list. And uh, he knew they weren't ready to follow Jesus, but he started praying for them daily for decades. And at his funeral, this is crazy. At his funeral, after a long career of ministry, 97 of the people on that list had chosen to follow Christ, which is like, wow, that's amazing, 97. There's four that didn't, but 97 did. And I just think if you could have that kind of impact in your life, I mean, that'd be really cool to see, like to pray and wow, God, I'd love that. But here's the other cool part. The four that didn't were at his funeral. He had the gospel presented at his funeral. And guess what? The final four chose to follow Christ there. All 101 names, all of them on the list chose to follow Christ, which I think is so cool. And it's because he practiced the surround. He didn't just pray and hope. He didn't pound on doors and shove it down their throats. He did have conversations with some when they were ready, but for all of them, he practiced the surround. It was a decision that he made. And this year, I want our church to practice the surround, write down one name and pray and surround. And I know if you're at the service and you're like I was growing up and you don't follow God yet, you're just like, oh boy, here they go. You know? And I remember sitting in services just like, just like this one. And I was like, my dad and brother are probably literally writing down my name on their note sheet right now. Like, don't look over because I know they're probably writing me down and they know and whatever. Um, but here's the thing that if you follow God, you need to get about your friends and family who don't follow God. They, we want to believe in God. Like I wanted so much to believe that God was real. Because I thought it would be really nice to know that there was more to this life, that there was actually like a hope after this life. I knew that Christianity led to a better life. Like I knew the facts, I knew the data. I saw it with my own eyes. I was like, man, my, my Christian family is way better off emotionally, spiritually, relationally than my non-Christian family. But I didn't have the faith to follow it yet. So my dad practiced this surround, but here's the truth. Not only did my dad practice this surround, I started practicing this surround on myself. Because here's why, Christians were the nicest people I knew. I mean, I knew some that weren't nice, but in general, Christians were way nicer. And I had friends who were very far from God and they were fairly selfish and we just had, we were mean 
And then I had friends who love God. And I was like, these are, I just, I want to be around these people. So I started practicing the surround. I surrounded myself with them, with church, with God's word. I mean, I studied the Bible. I got involved in all these groups where I get my questions answered. And by God's grace, I became a Christian. It was just the best thing, the best gift I could have ever received. And because of my faith in Jesus, I have the absolute best life. I mean, I have a really, and it's not because of anything other than the grace of God. My marriage is exceptional. I don't have a good marriage. I have an exceptional marriage. And it's only because of godly wisdom in my life. It's because of Jesus, like saving myself from marriage, you know, selecting the right spouse. I mean, the algorithm I use, used to find Kristen, that was not me. That was God. You know, here's the other thing. When I'm sick, facing medical issues, or I got people in my life who are dying, you know, the thought of facing tragedy, losing a friend, losing a parent, losing a child, like it's okay because of Jesus to live as Christ and to die is gain. And that is such a big deal. You know, I have been to people I love funerals who are atheists. And that's hard. That's a hard place. And then you do a Christian funeral. And it's like, wow, God is so good. That's a gift from God. And even if you don't believe in God, I know you want to. I know you want that. You want that. We all want that. And here's the thing. We know, we know that something doesn't come from nothing. And we know that the religion of atheism is not real. It's superstitious at best. And in reality, it is the most harmful movement in human history. It's the most problematic movement ever as far as murders of human beings go. It's like a super harmful movement. We know that secular spirituality also doesn't work. I mean, we look at movie stars, we look at like the Instagram generation and it's nobody, nobody's like, you know what? That works great. I mean, it's just really effective. The world has become better because of, no, it's terrible. So this year, if you don't follow God, I dare you to practice the surround. This year, this word is for you. I want you to surround yourself, even if you're not a Christian, in particular, if you're not a Christian, surround yourself with God's people, God's church and God's word for one year. At the very least, your life will be a little better. I mean, it will, try it for one year but let's practice the surround. Now I wrote down five little, sub, I said it's a one point message. You know, it's not just a moment, it's a moment surrounded by moments. But then I have five sub points on how to be a part of those little moments. And you might find this helpful too. The first one I wrote down is to live like Jesus. Just live like Jesus. I mean, in other words, be healthy. Don't be weird and fake. If we say that God gives us life and we need to live a life full of life, enjoy. And I think that means the Bible calls something, you know, the fruit of God's spirit living inside of you. But there's nine different things that God says are evidence of God in your life. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And God says, look, those are the things, you don't need to be super Jesus-y just throwing around like Bible verses and regular jargon and conversation. How's, how's your life going? Well, I got peace like a river. You know, I got whatever, like the justice and mercy. It's like, stop. No, 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 you don't need to do that. Live with the fruit of God's spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what we do. That's how we live like Jesus. And it happens naturally as we lean into God's way of life. It grows more and more. Secondly, be others focused. Focus on others. Show care about other people by listening and learning about their life. Have you ever noticed most of the time everybody's in like a contest to like share their own stories about their own life? And everybody's like competing to talk about themselves when you hang out together. But we don't need to do that because we have the infinite source of love living inside of us through God's spirit. I don't think that Christians need to shout with a megaphone on a street corner, forcing people to listen to us. We listen and care and earn the opportunity to share faith because we've listened. Christ gives us all the fullness that we need so we can pursue others and learn about others and listen to others. Number three, be a pursuer, be a pursuer. Invite people into your life. And this is big. Like in our society, how often do people sit at home hoping that somebody is gonna text them or call them or invite them? What if we're the initiators? What if they're pursuers? How often do I hear men and women and they're like, I wish my wife would initiate. I wish my husband would pursue. I wish somebody would send it, whatever. Be that. Why? Because Christ pursued us and we're little Christians. We act like Christ. So we pursue and initiate. 
Number four, and this is big, don't be afraid of rejection. I rejected the daylights out of poor Scott Doley, that poor, poor man. I just rejected him constantly. But I laid the foundation, or he laid the foundation for me to follow Christ years later. And I'm glad that he faced rejection week after week. The surround requires us to be durable enough to face rejection. Number five, when the time is right, act. This can be as simple as inviting someone to church, directing the conversation to spirituality, asking people about Jesus, or even calling people to follow Jesus using share Jesus without fear. And that never feels easy. I wanna be clear. Um, Even after I've done this hundreds of times, I'm still nervous when I call someone to faith. But I see these five things as the core of the surround that we practice in our life. Now listen, um, we're gonna go into a time of communion right now. And many of you grabbed uh, these little communion kits on your way in, and I encourage you to get them out. And if you didn't grab one, I'll have ushers just kind of walk up and down the row and you can kind of make a little eye contact with an usher if you need one. But this will be the first time I've led communion at all of our locations like this. And uh, Jesus instituted communion on the night he was betrayed. And it's kind of a big deal. It's for people who are all in with Jesus. They don't feel like you have to do it, especially if you're not all in with Jesus yet. But um, One of the big reasons why he instituted communion was to help us remember not just how much he loved us, but how he loved us, how he loved us. And as the disciples took communion, like I want you to imagine the the follower, these close followers of Jesus, as they took communion, what do you think that they remembered? You know, I think in part they remembered the crucifixion of Christ, of course, but I think they also remembered years of being surrounded by God's love, his relentless, purposeful, driven love. And it's interesting when you read their, the biographies of Jesus's life that they, that they wrote, it's interesting to see how in hindsight, they always point out like this is, Jesus did this because he was surrounding us because he had a purpose because he was fulfilling a prophecy. He was surrounding us. And as they ate that bread and drank that cup, I'm sure they remembered not just that Jesus loved them, but the way that he loved them. And I bet they felt compelled to live that same way. And this week, as we take communion, I want you to write down the name of someone close to you but far from God who actually lives near us in our communities. And as we take communion, I want us to think about the way that God loved us by surrounding us. And I want us to think about how we can surround them as we remember what Jesus did. This verse in the Bible, John 13, 34, Jesus spoke about this on the night he was betrayed, on the night that that he had the last supper and instituted, created communion. This is what he said. He said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you, so you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And this is really interesting. Um, When you make, it's called a covenant. Covenant is like bigger than a promise. It's like a really big deal. Uh, Covenant is always accompanied by a commandment. And in the Bible, there's something called the old covenant. And it was accompanied by 10 commandments, right? There's 10 different commandments. Some of you have heard of the 10 commandments, you know, big movies, stuff like that. Um, Jesus on the night he was betrayed instituted a new covenant, a new deal, a new promise. And the new covenant was, was accompanied by one commandment. One, okay? It's a higher, stronger, more demanding commandment. But this is it right here. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you, so you should love one another. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How did Jesus love his disciples? He surrounded them. He surrounded them, right? So he gives us this new commandment and then he institutes this new thing called communion. And he says, when you take communion, I want you to remember this commandment, which is how I loved you. Right, that's what we do when we take communion. It's a big, big deal. And every time we take communion, we're promising God, hey, I am a part of this covenant. And so I'm gonna do what you did. I'm gonna love the world the way that you love me. 
So I remember, I mean, to the point of the cross, you loved me, you surrounded me, you surrounded me. You made your grace irresistible. You elected me, you called me, you healed me, you made me whole. And as we take communion together, I want us to remember that. And I want us to pray about the surround this year. I'm not just telling you to write down a name because it's like, oh, you're in the surround, you know, let's grow to whatever. No, I'm doing this because this is the practice of faithfulness. This is one of the primary practices of our faith. This is what deep discipleship is. It's loving the world the way that God called or loved us first. So I want you to pray about the person you wrote down. I want you to remember Jesus surrounding you and in the same way that he loved us, let us love one another. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you eat this bread, do so in remembrance of me. And as they did eat together, let us eat together now. In the same manner after supper, the Lord Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you. Whenever you drink this cup, do so in remembrance of me. And as they did drink together, let us drink together now. Let's have a prayer, Lord Jesus. Today, we do remember the way you first loved us. We thank you for this covenant promise that you've given to us. The way that you loved us, Lord, we remember it. And we resolve to love others in that same way. God, give us a vision for the surround this year and everything that we do. Lord, I lift up future generations in our communities. Would you give us their hearts. Would they choose to follow you through us, God? I ask that you'd work. It doesn't matter who plants and who waters, Lord. Give us the vision to be a part of the moment, surrounding the moment. God, I ask that our children would follow you. Our grandchildren would love you. All of our descendants without exception, but I ask that you would make our harvest much bigger than that, Lord. Would it be our communities, our region, Lord? Would they know your love because of our churches? Thank you for the way you first loved us, the example you set for us, surrounding us. We resolve to love that way as well. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said amen and amen.